G'day and welcome to the potty in which I connect with some of the most influential guests from across Australia and the globe to share their very inspirational stories. I was born with cystic fibrosis, a chronic illness in which I was told would most certainly ruin my life. But like many of the incredible humans that I have on this show, I'm on a mission to prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we choose to respond to them. I'm your host, the captain of the ship and the man in charge, Bradley J. Drybra, and this is a lot to talk about. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to the potty. Very excited for today's conversation with the one, the only, Mr. Gary Jubelin. Gary is arguably the most celebrated homicide detective in Australia. He's an incredible storyteller. He has his own podcast called I Catch Killers in which he don't not only, I guess, recounts some of the cases, some of the major cases that he's covered in Australian history as a detective, but also he interviews some very interesting human beings, a lot of them being um, either criminals or also detectives. And it's just a very interesting and new conversation for me. I've not spoken to a gent like Gary on the podcast before, so it made it for me just a very enjoyable time. I hope that you enjoy it too. So without further ado, let's get into the chat with the man himself. How are you, mate? Good, Brett. And uh, I'd just like to uh, thank you for inviting me on. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to this mate, chat. The pleasure's all mine. I guess on the, the headline, if someone was to explain who you are or to give the I guess the audience a bit of a brief overview. You know, one of the most celebrated homicide detectives, arguably the most celebrated in Australia. You've dealt with cases like the William Tilra case, which has made headlines for years and years and years. But you've also found yourself on the other side of the coin. You know, yes, so I've had a look at the justice system from both sides. The thing that I found fascinating about you recently, Gary, is once we locked this chat in, in the lead up, I was, you know, you produce a lot of podcasts under your banner, I Catch Killers, which, similar to what I do on the show, you interview a guest, you hear much of their story, you hear their experience, and I was really keen to hear a little bit more about yours. You know, I mentioned to you before, I got an old man, a, a pop, who were in the police force, and so, as a young man, I wanted to be a copper. You got the police family. Yeah, you know, I got the police family. Um, thankfully, they talked me out of it. <laughs> they were um, wise people. They, they were wiser, <laughs> well, you know, they, they were wiser from their experience to talk me out of it. Um, you know, the police do so many good things. I've always been fascinated with that area. But also, I think you know, there wasn't a lot of information I could find from you in those chats because your job is to interview people. So I listened to one of your books about halfway through Badness. And the thing that I found fascinating with that book is your, I guess, you recalling the fact that through the police force, you often found things to be black or white, good or bad, right or wrong. But then in leaving the police force, and as you said, seeing... Yeah the law from the other side, the fact that you've identified that things aren't always black and white, that there is a little bit of a grey area and there are, you know, shades of both sides that are often experienced and expressed through the different experiences we have as human beings. Mm. Found that really interesting. Talk to me about the lessons that you've learned about good and bad, right and wrong, black and white, and maybe how you've, you know, busted some of those myths. Yeah. It's, um, I'd like to think as a human being, we all evolve, and mm. I'd like to think that I've, I've evolved. So I'm looking at life now at the latter part of uh, my exit from the police career and now working in the media. It's given me a chance to um, 
stop and reflect on what my role in the police was. Now, I was a very driven person, very passionate with my mm. career and uh, yeah, started off in uniform, but my main part of my work was in uh, plain clothes as a, as a detective um, in major crime squads specialising in homicide. So my role was to... It, it's almost like you're a hunter. And uh, I, when I speak to detectives, other detectives that I know are, are passionate about it, they, they get that same feel that you're looking for the person responsible for, for the crime. But in the policing, the way the dynamics of it is, you didn't have much time to reflect on why these people committed the crime or what happens after they're charged or convicted at court. So you sort of, you get a case, whether it's homicide or other type of areas that I worked in, you'd get a case, you'd work that case, hopefully get, get a result by finding the person responsible, put that person before the court. But then you'd move on to the next case. So you didn't have a lot of time to reflect about the person you, you put away, if that mm. makes sense. In homicide, you certainly stayed in contact with families and that because of the devastating effect homicide had. Then, you know, fast forward 30 years, I've been in the police and then overnight my career was taken away from me. I, you know, it's the elephant in the room. It was, um, I recorded conversations on my phone when talking to a person about the William Tyrrell investigation. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that at all. I've been convicted at the mm. court, local court and at appeal. So they found me guilty. I argue the toss, smarter people than me, legal people think I was justified in recording those conversations. And the irony was, I never hid the fact that I recorded the conversations, I recorded them 12 months later. So anyway, that aside, that's made me, I've woken up, one day I'm a homicide detective and uh, working some major cases, next day I'm, I'm out of the police. And then I started working in the media. And I started to think about, I still had that passion for, you know, helping in the criminal world, like, you know, resolving crimes, that type of thing. But obviously I didn't have my gun and handcuffs anymore. I wasn't a police officer. I started speaking to people that were criminals. These are people like some major criminals that if I came across in my working environment, there's a good chance guns would have been pulled and it would have been a shootout. Like, it's, these are major league crooks. One uh, person that sort of steered me in a direction, and it sounds funny when I, I talk about this person, Bernie Matthews, he'd spent over 30 years, I think he'd spent longer in jail than I had spent in um, uh, the cops. A mutual friend put us in contact and I went to meet uh, Bernie. I'd just recently got out of the cops. He just recently got out of prison. And it was almost like we're <laughs> sitting there staring at each other going, well, what do we do now? Yeah. But, should it be this placid? <laughs> it, 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 was, it was a weird feeling. We started talking and uh, Bernie had escaped from Long Bay Jail. He'd been an armed robber. He, he was the longest serving prisoner in the first Supermax prison in Australia. So he wow. had, a, had a real history. He was also an award-winning journalist, which is, you know, a, a sort of a... Sometimes we look at things in black and white, but that shows this person, you know, he, he had some... He had a good side to him as well. He told me about the brutality and uh, the, what he experienced when he was in prison. And when he was in a prison known as Grafton, or it still is Grafton, it still is known as Grafton Prison, um, there was a lot of, that was a hard school prison where prison, prisoners who wouldn't reform were sent to Grafton and uh, they were there and they were broken. That was the purpose of, of the prison. There was a Royal Commission into it, so I'm not talking or just speculating. There was findings of what happened to prisoners when, in, when they went in there and how they were treated. Bernie rattled off, it was like you or I talking about who we went to school with. He's rattling off who he was in the prison with 
and said he saw people come in there and uh, and the way they were treated, they mightn't have been violent when they went in, but they went out violent. Mm. So that sort of got me thinking, okay, are we creating criminals um, in, in that yeah. type of environment? So that's sort of one thing. Then I met some other people that were victims of uh, crime in that their family members had been murdered or, or people that were just doing good work. And I realised that uh, I thought I was fighting crime. I thought, I was, you know, people said, what are you? A detective. I'm a crime fighter. Yeah, I fight crime. I realised people were doing uh, a lot better work than I was by preventing crime, steering people in the right direction at crucial stages in their life. And so it made me start to think, okay, have not that I've wasted my time, but it just sort of opened my mind up to, it's not all black and white, it's not good guys, bad guys, there's a definite grey area. And some of the um, well-known criminals that I've, I've spoken to on the podcast and just socially, um, when I start to find out about their background, I wonder if I, well, I don't wonder, if I grew up in that background, I would have gone probably down the same, same path. So it's given me a greater understanding of, uh, of crime. And I think, to my way of thinking, it's made me a more rounded person. You can get narrow focus as a, uh, as a detective. You have to be. I'm not, not pulling away from that. When I say narrow focus, you've got to be driven. You've got to have your mind open mm. to the investigation. But you've got to be driven. So, yeah, long answer to a short question. It, it has changed me and it makes me look at ways of fighting crime in, uh, in, in different ways rather than uh, let's just um, lock people up because it doesn't always work. And people might think, as a cop, what's he doing? Has he gone soft? Has he turned? No, I haven't gone soft. I'm just looking at the best way of uh, dealing with the situation. I think it's a fascinating conversation because much similar to you, I feel like my view on the world has changed not though with the, the prior perspective that you had as a police officer. Whilst I grew up around coppers with my dad and my pop, you know, it was always this conversation of right or wrong, good or bad. And I always wanted to be good because I never wanted to disappoint my old man. Yeah. And I've got a really good relationship with my dad. But I found that when I started having conversations on the podcast, I used to think, man, how does someone get addicted to drugs? Yeah, yeah. How does someone go and physically hurt people how does somebody make a decision to do something they they know is wrong yeah you know when they've got all the evidence to show what is right then i started having deep conversations with people about how they ended up in their life circumstances what's dictated their experience and i started to find that there were these links in childhood that were very different experiences to which i had so i recall my childhood as being like just incredibly privileged you know, waking up and knowing that I've got two parents under that same roof that I live under that love me and would do anything for me and my sister. To know that I never went without a meal. I never experienced violence. My example of being a grown-up, being an adult, was doing what's right, loving the people around you, going above and beyond for your family. It was just this incredible experience. And when I started to meet people who spoke about the hardship in which they grew up in, you know, Jeff Morgan talks about it, who we've both had on our shows. Yeah. Growing up and not knowing where the next meal is coming from. You know, so him and his brother I, start robbing canteens. I know. Uh, it's, uh, Jeff is a good example. Grew up an Aboriginal fellow that grew up in, uh, in Redfern and talks about if he didn't get home in time, um, there would be no food there. And then his bed was sharing a mattress on the floor. And if he got in there early enough, he got to put his head on the mattress. Like Things like that and what he's doing now. I, I'm a big believer in redemption. I, I like stories of redemption because Jeff, you know, he talks about it openly, so we're not talking out of school. I think he spent 
17 years in prison, yeah. all up, um, an armed robber. And he's not proud of what he, what he did. And he certainly, the things that he's doing now is a positive contribution to uh, society. But who are we to judge people like that? Like, I, I had a, a hard father, he's passed away now. But I'm glad he was hard on me because he pointed me in the right direction because I, you know, there was people that could have steered me in a different direction mm. and my life would have been completely different. And we are fortunate. You talked about being surrounded with love and all that as a kid. It breaks my heart when I hear these people's sto- uh, stories and they're you know, old you know, hard-ass crooks at this stage, but when you hear what happened to them as a, a kid, if you don't have empathy, I don't think you've got any humanity in you. I remember my dad telling me a story once. would have been in my teens... And he recalls coming home, or I recall him coming home from work one day, and he was telling my mum, my sister and I that on the job that night, he'd been to, I think it was a domestic um, locally in the area, and he remembers walking into this flat, and he's like, I've never seen anything messier in my life. Like, there was a car engine in the sink, there was stuff all over the floor, like you couldn't even see the floor, it stunk. And he remembers walking in and he's looking for the the suspects. And out of nowhere, this little girl, she would have been three or four, sprints across the lounge room mm. and just hugged his leg. And he's like, I've never felt a hug so tight. Yeah. And I remember seeing my dad get emotional and saying, I just wanted to bring her home. I just wanted to bring her home and show her what a childhood should be like. Yeah. You know, what it feels like to be loved, what it feels like to have people who care about you and to, as you should as a child, wake up and feel at peace and I remember thinking about that and thinking fuck that's so left of center of the experience that I have and I've often thought about that story since you know over the course of this you know three and a half years doing the podcast as as I say I think this show has made me a man because it's given me a level of empathy I never had before it's funny you mention empathy I always uh, say with what makes a good detective and the first thing I say is empathy and I, I see that in the detectives that I look up to, and there's a lot that looked up to, I, I look up to, that mentored me, and or you know I aspired to be be them. When I sit down and talk with them, that word empathy comes up mm. quite often because you've got to have that un- understanding. The experience that your father had, I, I don't think there's a working police officer that wouldn't have seen something similar. It yeah. just, as you were saying, it, it just made me flash back to some places I've seen with you know just the floor covered in dirty nappies and a little kid running around that clearly hasn't been uh, washed or looked after and uh, just wanting to hang on to your leg just like that because they're looking for someone that's probably not going to hurt them or scare them. Um, You've got one kid of your own or a couple? Two, two. Two, yeah, yeah. How has that been like as, you know, someone who has been in the force for years and seen those things? Did you find it hard sometimes to, to come home and accept that? I, yeah, you, you look at it and it, it's, you try to leave your, you try to leave your work at work, but mm. if you're uh, fully committed and in your job, you're going you're gonna to bring it home. I, those type of experiences, because I knew my kids were protected and they wouldn't be in that type of environment. Sometimes where you, uh, when I come home, it was hard dealing with family, whether it's kids, friends or whatever. When you've seen something horrific as you do in homicide, it was very hard stepping from that environment into a loving, friendly, jovial, you know, it might be, you might be at a murder scene on Christmas day and then Christmas night you're going, meeting all the family and they're all celebrating. You have just seen something horrific. 
it was hard to make that, those adjustments. And I think, uh, I'm speaking not just for myself, I know with other, other police, they find it the same. You go from the intensity of just, you know, real dark, a, a dark world that you don't want to be involved in, you don't want to see, but it, it's part of your job. And then you come back to the home and you don't, don't want it to overlap. I remember hearing a, um, I think it was a former Marine on a podcast and he was talking about his experience overseas fighting in a war. And he was talking about PTSD. And I remember he said, you know the, the movie American Sniper? Yep. And he said, the most real, the most real image in, in cinema that I've ever seen that truly depicts what it feels like to be a soldier is the scene from that movie where he comes home and he's sitting on the lounge and he's got a beer on the table and the kids are running around him and his wife's moving around the house, but he can't hear anything. It's silent. Yeah. And he's just sitting there and looking into the distance because it's hard to be the same man at home yeah. that you are somewhere else. And I wonder that, you know, do you have to learn to, because I think to be a great detective, or as you said, mm. to be really invested in your work, yeah. you have to take it home because you can't sleep at night knowing that someone like, William Tyrrell still isn't found, yeah. right? I, I, I laugh and probably laugh's not the right word, but someone says, oh, no, I always make sure that my family's not affected, but I'm a hard-working detective. It's not a nine-to-five job. Yeah. yeah. So you've you got to commit. It's you, you answer the phone if it rings at one o'clock in the morning or, or whenever. You might be a day off. You go into work if something happens. That, that's the sort of nature of it. It is hard in that environment to sort of switch off I, and I think everyone's different in the way that they, they manage it. I felt like I had a good bounce back. There were, I can only remember you know, a handful of times where I just, one day it was a, uh, I'd been going at these, it was an organised crime type murder, locking up uh, people and just intensity every day, making, literally making life and death decisions. And I remember waking up one morning, I just didn't feel like, I'm thinking, I don't want to face this. I just... I don't mm. want to face it. I, my cup's full. I don't want to go to work. And uh, I just got up and uh, spoke to my partner and uh, just, you know, voiced that and uh, had a shower, splashed my face, put the suit on and, and went there and, and sucked it in and, and got through it. I think I'm lucky in that I have that. Um, and everyone's different. So I don't judge people where your cup's full because you don't know how different things impact on people. I had a couple of things that I, I would do that would help me get through it. Like, I investigated homicide for 25 years, which is a long time in that type type of field. And uh, yeah, I turned up every day and was ready to go. It didn't didn't burn me out, um, but I just had a couple of you know things that I'd do just to um, balance it. You know, I find it really interesting that we watch. I guess for a lot of us, our experience of crime and the kind of life that you've lived is through the TV screen, right? <laughs> and it's not not always the most realistic version of of what things are actually unfolding in that environment. But I can imagine there are some things that relate or, or hit home. It seems as though for me, if you look at the lead detective in any of these crime series... Dysfunctional. He's always a bit dysfunctional, yeah. he's a bit lonely, he doesn't yeah. really have a life outside of it. Do you think that reflects, is like a true depiction of maybe what you experienced or is it different? Yeah, I, I, I look at that and those, those depictions and sometimes I think I'm just a character out of, out yeah. of that. Like it's, it's almost, you know, come home and uh, you've got the half-eaten pizza for, for mm -hmm. dinner and then yeah, you're sitting there in a, a, a flat on your own. 
I, I went through two um, marriage separations. Not not proud of that. You know, it wasn't what I set out to do. It wasn't what I thought my life would do. How much work impacted on it, I, I don't know. But my focus when I was on a homicide was, yeah, very much focused on the, on that homicide and all the investigation. You, you're probably running a few at the same time. So I'm sure it had an impact. And after I left the cops, I made a point of going back and speaking to friends and family and almost apologising that, yeah, I was so absent because I was doing my career and they, they allowed me that absence but were always mm. there for me when I got back to help put me back together again because sometimes those investigations would uh, would wear you down. But, yeah, the, the way the dysfunction that uh, detectives are portrayed, I think it's the nature of the work. You've really... It, it's almost... And people don't want to say it because it can have a negative con- a, a connotation to it. But you've almost got to become obsessive on the hard mm. ones. There's some investigations that it's like tracking an elephant through the snow. It's pretty easy. You just follow the bouncing ball. Other ones, you've really got to become um, obsessed on it to uh, you know, try and get results. Or if you don't get results, make sure you've done everything you can. And so, yeah, there have been many a night or many a day when I've, uh, I've, I've been sitting at home and uh, you know, cook, a, cook a meal for yourself and have a beer, go to bed and get up and, and do it the next day. And there's been other times where... I'm almost, and I'm, I'm being pretty honest here, you're almost running away from the chaos that is your personal life and I come into work on my days off and, uh, yeah, if I'm not working this weekend, well, I'm not doing anything here. I'll go to work and uh, it's probably more worthwhile me being in there. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I remember hearing in the book you spoke about the fact that, actually it mightn't have been in the book, it might have been when you were speaking to Matty Johns on yeah. his show, and you mentioned that, you know, when you would walk into an environment in which you were face-to-face, you know, um, questioning someone who was a suspect of, of a really heinous yeah. crime. And you almost have to put this wall up as to you're not going to emotionally react to anything they say because yeah. you don't want to give them a rise. Yeah. You want to be, you know, quite blank and, and quite measured in the way that you react. But I wonder if you do that for long enough, you then have almost this, like, struggle to express emotion, which then when you're at home and you're around kids or yeah. partner, you want to be able to like channel into emotion where, you know, you're happy and you're ecstatic and you're, you know, yeah. you're on the top of the world and then you want to be able to cry and, you know, yeah. be emotionally in touch. Is that hard? You, you do have to shut your emotions down to a degree and there's sort of two parts to it. The, the, um, when you, you're dealing with someone that's talking about a horrific crime, my job is not to get emotionally caught up in it. I, I wouldn't be doing my job as a detective. So you can be telling me the most horrendous things and I'll just sit there and, yeah, okay, I'll take it without, without uh, judgment. The thing is with, um, yeah, that type of thing, you, it is hard to adjust your emotions. Like it, it, if I walk into a homicide scene or walk into an interview room or whatever, there's a persona, an energy that I'm putting out. I know what the energy is. Yeah, I'm in charge, or if I'm I'm part of the team, or we're here to do a job. There's no smiles. It, it's yeah. There's an intensity that we deliberately bring to the situ- situation. That carries it a in an interview room. It carries in a uh, at a homicide scene, and and possibly at court as well. <laughs> it doesn't carry it at home. Yeah. And the things that um, I notice about myself, and this is yeah, just on reflection. But you become, and I I, I don't want to say short-tempered because that, I'm not throwing things around the house or, or stuff like that. But 
when you've been working on an operation, we call it an operation if you're you know, at a scene or you, you're planning to lock someone up or that. So there's a lot of decisions that need to be made. And the further up you go in, in terms of leadership in the team, um, you'll be making those decisions. So it'll be, you know, I might have people out in the field and a car will take off. Do you want the car stopped? I've got to make the decision, make an informed decision and consult with other people. It's not, not just me and any time I'm talking about policing, it, it's, a, it's a team sport. I've got to make that decision go, bang, that's what we're doing. Bang, that's what we're doing. And just real decisive. You've got to be decisive because of the speed of the what, what's going mm. on. Then you get home and it might be someone saying, oh, do you want to go around the Peters this weekend? And I'll just go, yes. Oh, should we or should we do something else? And I'm thinking, I've already made the decision. I've moved on waiting for the next one. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to, to exist in that headspace 100% of the time. Because I think about, for example, um, done a podcast last week. Mm. I was that tired. I didn't sleep well. You know, I had a run that morning, that morning and yeah. I thought the run would pick me up and it made me even tighter. And I'm sitting there and I could tell that I wasn't as sharp behind the mic as I'd yeah. like to be. But the truth of the matter is that the consequences of me not being that sharp behind the mic is maybe I can pick it up, yeah. you know, but to most of the listeners, they don't really give a fuck. As yeah. long as the story's told, yeah. they're like, he's polished enough. But in your job, you can't afford to rock up you can't, and, you, and be a little bit behind the ball. You can't do it half-hearted and that, that's, where, that's where you pay the price because you've really got to give yourself to it. And the interesting thing about being a homicide detective is that your work is going to be scrutinised. No matter what happens, your work will be scrutinised. You either charge a person, they go to court, and you're going to have barristers being paid $10,000 a day to make you look stupid on decisions that you've made with you know, one hour's sleep in the past two days, that type of thing. Yeah. And then if it doesn't go to the court, if no one's been charged, you're going to be scrutinised at the coroner's court about what the investigation was done. And then you've got the high-profile ones, you've got the media scrutiny. So you've got to have, I, I think, a, a good homicide detective. You've got to have thick skin. You know you're going to be criticised, but you mm. just have to be able to justify your decisions and that helps get you through. Like, I, I've always said, and this is what I was taught, and this is what... I tried to pass on, on to people. The worst thing about leadership is not making the decision. I've, I've seen matters, I've, I've seen situations fall apart where there is no leadership. Someone's got to lead. If, you, if, you're making a lead. if you're a leader and you're making hard decisions, get as much information as you can, seek input from the people around you, then you make the decision and justify your decision. Now, mm. guaranteed, three years down the track in court, someone is going to be criticising that decision. Well, why did you do this? Why did you arrest him at that time? Or something simple mm. like that. You've got to be able to justify your decisions. And that, that helped me get through the pressure points. That mm. okay, I can, I can justify what I did. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm a big fan of Jocko Willink. Um, yeah. Retired Navy SEAL. And you know, I hear Jocko speak about this principle of extreme ownership and, yep. and how as a leader... I think just what you said there is really where it clicked for me that, you know, it's about consulting the people around you, taking their input, then making an educated decision and yeah. owning that decision. And you mentioned really early on in this chat, you said that, you know, I don't know whether the word was you're not ashamed or you're unapologetic yeah. to, you know, what you've been charged yeah. for recording those conversations. And I fucking love that because mm. I think, you know, we had a chat off camera about it. Yeah. You know, you, you said you listened to my Charlie Teo episode. 
I knew that episode would get good and bad publicity yeah. because he's a polarizing character that some people agree with, some people obviously don't. I fucking love Charlie. Yeah. I think what he's done is heroic. I'm, I'm behind him. It's why I brought him on the podcast to have a conversation. And I made a decision before that podcast. I believe in what this man's done. Mm. I support it. I respect him. I'm going to have a conversation and knowing that I'm coming to the table personally with the right intention yep. and I'm expressing what I authentically and honestly believe, whatever the consequences are, I'm happy to bear them. Yeah. You know, I think it sounds very similar for yourself. Uh, look, you, you've, got to, you've got to own what you've done. I, I think, it, and look, I make mistakes every day and I'll, I'll make a mistake today, I'll make a mistake tomorrow. We all, all make mistakes. Own up if it's a mistake, but if you believe in something and... That's probably a, there's a bit of a square peg in a round hole in the police because I, I took issue on a, a couple of things on during my career. But it wasn't for personal gain. It was just because I, I truly believed that was the right thing. When I was charged, and I, I won't bore people with it because, you know, on the scale of things, when you look at uh, what, what happened to me compared to, you know, what's happened with the people who've lost loved ones and people who've been murdered, it pales into insignificance. But... I could have taken a knee and gone because there were certain people that wanted to, you know, break me. I could have taken a knee and said, "I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't do it again." Blah blah blah, and it would have sort of blown over. But I'm, you know, this is my opinion. Other people might have other opinions. I can justify what I did, and uh, I wasn't going to play their games. I wasn't prepared to do it. Now, you have to be an idiot to cut off your nose to spite your face, type thing. Like, why didn't I just, you know, continue on? There was a principle involved, and if I sold my principles out on that, and I, I pride myself in my ethical behaviour as a police officer and my principles, I don't think I'd, I'd be comfortable with myself. So you pay a, pay a price for that. And, you know, Charlie's situation, he's, uh, you know, he's stuck his head up and people have gone at him. And uh, I listened to that podcast you did with him, and I thought the thing that I liked about it, he didn't shy away from anything. No, he owned it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I had a similar conversation with him. I don't know if you recall this moment on the podcast, but I, I referenced the Batman quote. Now, I was quite a Batman fan as a kid. It was <laughs> okay. my, my first dream was to be Batman. Um, I realized I'm not going to say I love Batman because I became a police officer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing yeah. is, right, so let's talk about a moment in, I think it's The Dark Knight. There's a quote where somebody says, you, if you're a hero for long enough, or if you're a hero and you live long enough, you eventually become the villain. And for me, that speaks to tall poppy culture. And we spoke about that being a theme in that conversation with yeah. Charlie. If it's not out of line for me, and, and tell me if it yep. is, because I don't want to put you in hot water, but are there reasons why you think people wanted you out of the force? I, uh, you, you've raised it. I'll, I'll address it. I, I don't raise it like the tall poppy, because if I do, it sounds like, oh, he's, he's up himself. He just thinks, yeah, he was better, yeah. than, better than people. As I said, I, I would stand up on, on things that uh, yeah, other people wouldn't necessarily think I should do as a police officer. I marched on Parliament four times um, down Macquarie Street with Aboriginal families protesting about the way that their matter had been um, treated. That didn't make me popular in an organisation. I also, and it was just, it could have been any one of a you know, hundred or so police that were involved in, in different things. They did an underbelly series, uh, Underbelly Badness, that was based around the investigation I was leading when Underbelly was you know, the top show in the country. I noticed a change in things from, from there. I noticed I, I almost had a target on my back, as silly as it mm. sounds. We're talking a, a TV series. 
And people often, I've been criticised, and this again, people's people's opinions that I, I sought um, sought recognition or, or sought time in the media. The reality was that I investigated for 25 years investigating homicides. There's probably three investigations that attracted media attention. There's all these countless other ones that I didn't. And mm. the reason they got uh, media attention is because of the nature nature of the crimes. The only investigation that I actively pushed for media attention was the murder of three Aboriginal kids because no one cared. They were mm. the Barable kids, Colin Walker, Evelyn Greenup and Clinton Speedy, who were murdered in uh, Barable in 1990 and 91. I took over in uh, 96 investigating that, uh, 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 reinvestigating that investigation. I gave evidence to the parliamentary inquiry and I said we didn't properly resource it, it wasn't done, done properly. And people would come to me, members of the media would come to me to talk about other high-profile jobs I, I was involved in. And I'd say, well, we've had three kids killed by a serial killer in a small country town that the police, because of a whole range of things, and racism also came into it, I wasn't shying away, didn't properly resource the investigation. Uh, well, yeah, we can't really report on that because I don't think people, people would be interested in it because it's um, the Aboriginal kids. It's changed now. I think we've yeah. changed. So, yeah, I proactively generated interest on on uh, that investigation. As for the other ones, I was just doing my job. And uh, mate, it's fucking sad, isn't it, to hear that? Because I think, you know, it's funny. We spoke about before the fact that you have to almost be a little bit unemotional. But I think the one thing that you get that maybe makes you more in touch emotionally than the everyday human is. You existed for 25 years in a space in which there was a, a victim or a number of yeah. victims and then also a perpetrator. And in experiencing the hardship, you know, because most of that time is spent with the victim's family mm. and with the people around them and experiencing that hardship and the emotion and the turmoil of having lost someone they love, yeah. it makes you extremely compassionate to that, right? Yeah. And I think that's why it's so powerful that people who have that compassion have to be a voice for those who aren't heard. Well, and uh, uh, thanks for saying that, Brad, because I, I think, and uh, yeah, uh, I'm so fortunate that the bearable people that sort of embrace me and, uh, you know, they've come to my home, I go to their homes. Yeah, they're a lot like family to me and they've, they've said so many nice things. But one of the things before I, and I, uh, I, I get emotional even thinking about because there was so much pressure on it, that uh, during the parliamentary inquiry, that uh, came at the back of all these marches on Parliament and getting, uh, you know, getting uh, the politicians to look at what's gone on. I was called to give evidence, at the first person to give evidence at the inquiry, and I remember a, a couple of the elders came up and said, "You've got to make sure that you speak. You're speaking for our people now." And I felt so much pressure. The night before that, I sat up all night and I sat up all night making sure that I, I had all the stuff in my head because I didn't want to read, I didn't want to refer the notes, I wanted to go bang, bang, bang and really make a statement. And I, I remember um, there was a narrow terms of reference for the, um, the inquiry and I was warned that when I get in the witness box and swear, um, uh, swear in as a witness, I'm not to go outside the parameters. And then I've got the Aboriginal families sitting there, the, the court door, or it was at a, at a hall uh, for the inquiry, was full. And I'm looking at them and I'm looking at, I've been told not to go out outside the parameters. And then I think the first sentence I went <laughs> way outside the parameters and just called it for what it, what it was. I was 
it was the right thing to do. And I've, I've got to say, and I won't um, name the politician, I won't embarrass the, the politician, but uh, pulled me aside after I got out of the uh, witness box there and said, uh, look, you went uh, right outside the parameters of what this inquiry is about. And I thought, here we are, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble. That's exactly what we thought you would do. And that's why they put me in there. So, uh, yeah, people care. People do care. But it was just a sad thing with the Barrable thing that, uh, the Barrable murders, I shouldn't call it the Barrable thing, the Barrable situation, is that sadly people didn't care because they couldn't relate to, uh, you know, and I always use the analogy, and it's been said a lot about Barrable now, that if it was three white kids that disappeared living in the same street over a six-month period in the north shore of Sydney, can you imagine the police response that they'd get? Yeah. And they didn't get that. And they still haven't got justice, but one thing I'm proud of with that particular investigation is that uh, they know people care, like genuinely care. And not just me, there was a number of people working on the investigation that uh, also put in and, you know, made sacrifices to make sure we could try and get justice for the families. Yeah, beautiful story, Matt. I appreciate you sharing that. I wonder, you know, when you're going into these environments as a detective and, you know, you're spending years analysing people, you know, like the William mm. Tyrrell case, how, how long since his disappearance? You're how how long is that now? Eight years, it's gone uh, almost coming up to eight, eight years at this eight stage. Eight years. Yeah. So I remember being around 18 at mm. the time then maybe 19, I remember hearing about that case yeah. as, a, as a young man and thinking how terrible that is. And, you know, I've I seen all of the news articles, all of, you know, heard all of the news yeah. flashes on TV that there's a, a potentially new suspect, <laughs> this person's being investigated. Yeah. And when you're dealing with a whole bunch of people who, you know, you're trying to bring, you know, whoever that is yeah. to justice, I can imagine that there's an element of, psychology involved in, in trying to read whether those people are telling you the truth. Yeah, As a detective, are you trained in psychology? You, you're not trained. In, well, when I say you're not trained, not formally in a classroom, but you're trained yeah. by your experiences, your, yeah. your life experiences, your experiences as a police officer and, and who you might, might work with. The William Tyrrell matter, and just uh, I, I ran it for four years. I took it over five months after William's disappearance. It was given to me, and I ran it for four years before that was the downfall of my uh, my police career. I stand by everything I did on the William Tyrrell matter, and I know there's been criticism in the media, and, and sometimes I just want to scream from the rooftops and say, I wish everyone knew the full story. Mm. And I've said publicly, I've said it in the book, that there should be a, a public inquiry into the investigation. I seem to be the only person accountable on this whole, whole thing. Like mm. I, I just, uh, I'm gobsmacked by what, what's going on. But I think what we've all got to hang on to is that this child has disappeared and the parents still haven't got answers. The biological parents and the foster parents still haven't got answers. And uh, yeah, we need to give them answers. And uh, I don't like the way it's been played out and speculation on, uh, on um, certain suspects and the one of recent times, I think, yeah, it's going to be time to put up or shut up when you say there's one suspect and that we're going to, you know, they're doing a big search and it's pointed at a person that can't be named for legal reasons. Well, that's, I think, now 18 months down the track. Where's where's the evidence? Present uh, mm. present the evidence or, or don't uh, leak this information because they're always saying it's been leaked, leaked to the media. So I think it's brought out some of the worst aspects of high-profile policing in the mm. Tyrrell investigation. The fact that, that there's internal conflict, which I'm, I'm part of, even though I'm not in there now, 
is shameful that the whole focus should be on uh, finding out what's happened what's happened to William but on the question of suspects how you look at uh, look at suspects when you're sitting in an interview room people often ask do you have a gut instinct you've been a detective for a long time and I I look at it this way if I if I'm sitting talking to you I'm speaking to you about a, a particular matter I will watch you on the way that you react to questions I'll sit on questions and just drop them at the, the right time and just see what your reaction is I'll watch your body language I'll, I'll watch all that but you've got to be careful not to misread that so mm. you can I, I think the instinct points you in a direction but you've got to make sure that's overlaid with, overlaid with facts otherwise you, you can make make a mistake but definitely it points you in a direction and I like to think yes I know when someone's line but not to the point that I, I can give professional evidence I can just say well my instinct he seemed a bit shifty or, or she seemed to be holding something back I think you get that sort of um, awareness mm. as, as a detective for long enough and the other thing that uh, I, I think as a detective and most people don't realize this but when you're speaking to detectives you can have some of the suspects you're sitting opposite can so I have got. I have not done anything. They can be so convincing. They're going, no, it's not me. You've got the wrong person. And I've seen what I would call naive um, detectives buy into that and go, oh well, but the person denied it. And I'm thinking, wait, uh, wait till you've been around for thirty years, and you'll see that ninety uh, percent of the people you speak to are going to deny it, uh, uh, even if they're they're guilty. Uh, very few confess. So. I see that in uh, some police that the mistake they make that uh, they just believe the person because they're so compelling. And uh, I've met despicable people that would say I haven't done it, and we've virtually got them on CCTV footage, you know, <laughs> killing the person. <laughs> that's and not me. Still, that's not me. Just looks like me. Is that an actor playing me? Yeah, yeah, that sort of ridiculous stuff. So, yeah, you d you do learn a lot as a detective, but I honestly believe it's part of in your makeup to start with because I've seen some um, police officers that uh, I reckon they're, yeah, they'll never have that instinct. They just haven't got that whatever that gene is or whatever that part of the brain is. They just don't pick it up. They m miss the keys. And then I see a lot of people outside um, uh, the police. I know I could make a very good detective in a very short period of time. Mm. You get them across. They've got the skills that you need. You learn the law. You learn your powers and then point them in the right direction and it could be very efficient. Well, I'm going to rule myself out of that equation, mate, because I was thinking about you the other day. I was sitting on that lounge just over there watching... Have you ever watched The Undoing? No, It's no. like a limited series. Nicole yeah. Kidman and Hugh Grant. Yeah. And essentially it's a story of... I hope I'm not spoiling this for anyone. Yep. Tune out for the next minute if you haven't <laughs> yeah. watched it. But it's um, the husband's having an affair. Yep. Um, the lady he's having an affair with... Um, is found murdered yeah. and you know he's the initial suspect right yeah. like he wants to shut her up he wants to make sure that doesn't get out to his family he goes missing ends up coming back into the plane he's held in custody yep. but throughout the course of these six episodes or however many it is I've gone from he definitely did it yeah. to maybe it was the wife God, maybe it was the son Yeah. you know because he didn't want his mum and dad to break up maybe it was this person I've gone through about ten different suspects yeah. it ends up being him and I guess the intention of the show is to somewhat make you second guess everyone at some point. And that's that's very much the way of an investigation. You know, as I said, there's some investigations that it's fairly obvious right from the start, but there are investigations that take twists and turns. And people say the tunnel vision. Tunnel vision is dangerous. You, you've got to look. But if I'm looking at you as a suspect, I'll look at you as a suspect until I can prove 
your involvement or non-involvement. So you've got to focus on that. With the tough investigations that I often uh, got involved in, there's multiple suspects. So you work through the list and you, you go, okay, we're going to focus on Brad now. Let's see what we can find out about Brad and you focus on that. Okay, some evidence came out that obviously it's not Brad, we move on to the next one. And it's something similar uh, along those lines in general terms. I learned a very important lesson early in my career, early in my... Uh, I don't think I was even in homicide at the time. I was just... I think it was organised crime, but I was seconded to a homicide investigation. Explain what that means quickly. Um, organised... You, you'll have a homicide unit, so a yeah. squad, so they're dedicated. I, I'm not sure how many are in New South Wales now or, or different states, but then you've got other squads, the armed hold-up squad, the sex crimes, organised yeah. crime... So I was working organised crime, but they needed the shortfall in detectives on this homicide investigation, so I got brought across on that, so it was very early in my career. And um, there was a bloke... Well, I, I won't mention the victim's name other than the fact that... Well, not other. I won't mention her name, but she was an elderly lady that was a, attacked in a home and sexually assaulted and, and uh, strangled. It was a horrendous, horrendous crime. We had a suspect very early in the early in the investigation. This suspect was seen running from the scene at the, the time. When he was interviewed, he said he was walking his dog and the dog got off the lead and that he was running to catch his dog. We couldn't work out how the person gained entry into the house because the house was locked, but it was unlocked, so someone that uh, the victim trusted to open, open the door. This suspect that we had we found out when we started looking at him, he was knocking on elderly women's doors and asking for a glass of water. And so, okay, you're running away from the scene, um, sh showing that he's, um, you know, uh, knocking on the door the same way, like he could have gained entry by, by that way. We interview him and he says, um, yeah, there was someone, he saw someone at the scene, and he's describing, and this is, you know, when we talk about lying, he's describing this person. He said, as I was walking past and my dog got off the lead, I was running, but I saw someone coming out of the driveway from across the road and he was wearing a stud earring, there was a blue bit and a little diamond and all that. Clearly, too much detail. Like, you know he's lying. Yeah. You can't see that far. You, you, so he's just making stuff up. This person was also a member of a, uh, a, a religious group that... Um, she attended uh, regularly so was this person and then this person we look at uh, he hadn't been in New South Wales very long but interstate he had uh, a previous charge for uh, sexual assault of an elderly uh, elderly woman so we're thinking got this person yeah. uh, like yeah we, we were like every instinct of all of us not just me we're all going this is like all these red flags tick 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 and you're thinking it has to be him but you've got to be cautious because when you think it's someone, you then try and you know, make sure you step back and look at, it, uh, look at it objectively. This was in the early stages when DNA came in. And so we, before we, we picked him up, we thought, well, we'll get this DNA that uh, I don't think it had been trialled much. It was in the early 90s or, or late 80s. And uh, we got, uh, got his DNA, took it to the lab, and they come back and say because there was um, some semen left at the left at the scene. Mm. Said no, that's not your. Uh, he's not the person. <laughs> we going for what? Well, and this is this is old school policing crashing with the new you know the science yeah. of uh, DNA. 
And myself and uh, the officer in charge were looking at each other going, this can't be right. So we went down to the laboratory and had these scientists explain on a chart why this isn't him. And we just, we walked out more confused than when we went in. But we accepted that, okay, this is not him. Then we found the actual person. The, we, we, uh, I forget how it broke, but we got the actual person who confessed to it. It was a very chilling, uh, chilling confession. And the scary part, he was looking at targeting other people at the time too, other elderly ladies after this woman had been murdered. But getting back to Knucklehead that uh, had been lying and that, he was also walking around the local railway station telling people that he was a suspect in this matter. And when we ended up charging someone else, he turned up at the police station and complained. He wanted to complain about me um, for why they've charged someone else. So, yeah, a complete... Proper psychopath. Proper, <laughs> proper psychopath and nutter. <laughs> but that just taught me that you've got to make sure that you, you, you know, you're charging the right person or you've got mm. all your uh, all ducks lined up because it, it's a big thing. It's a, a big thing. And I, I've learnt, and I, I put my hand up, I've learnt more what it's like to go against the power of the state because that's what I feel happened, happened with me when I was charged. And uh, I'm probably set up as best as anyone could be to deal with a, a charge. I know the court system, I know the system, and I'm not ashamed of the charge that uh, was laid yeah. against me. It was hor horrible circumstances, and it was you know all information leaked to the media and stuff like that, and it was humiliating walking into court. But I just felt the pressure. You felt the pressure of the state against you, and that's given me a new perspective on it from you know policing point of view. I didn't really yeah look. Or, or understand the full impact it had on the power that uh, police have and uh, how they can mm. disrupt uh, people's lives. And uh, I was saying to my son as I was walking in for um, when they were going to hand down the sentence, and I said, I, I feel like it's, yeah, I'm walking to the gallows. And, mm. yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be uh, sent inside the prison for this. Like, it's, imagine if you were walking in for the, waiting on a sentence in an armed robbery or drug matter or murder. Mm. It must be hor horrific. Yeah, yeah, I don't care if the, the people were guilty, but yeah, innocent people. So yeah, it's interesting because I spoke to. I was mentioning to you before we jumped on the mics here, Bruce Bryan. Yeah, uh, on the most recent episode released of my podcast, and, and Bruce was away for twenty nine years in Sing Sing Correctional Facility in New York um, for a murder he didn't commit. I can't. In, mate, the thing that's yep. mind blowing to me yep. is. I can't imagine any circumstance, I'm not even going to fool myself and make out, I can't imagine any circumstance in which I would come out of that 30 years locked away yep. and be pleasant. <laughs> you know, no. like I, I would feel so robbed and so hard done by. But when you speak to Bruce, and I'm going to put you in yep. contact with him because I think you'd really enjoy a conversation with him. I, I just can't help but feel so happy when I speak to him yep. because for... For all of the challenges he's been through, he has this incredibly stoic mindset of, you know, don't be bitter, but be better for it. And he was like, I was either going to let this quote just hit me. He said, I was either going to serve time or let time serve me. Oh, and so wow. he, he educated powerful. himself. Yeah, that is powerful. You know, he'd come out with a couple of degrees. He'd come out with this, you know, vast knowledge. And the way that he speaks mm. and the way that he carries himself, you would think that fuck, this is an intelligent guy who's spent years studying at university, having lived experience, connecting with different people. And so for me, it's a real joy to see him in a position now where you know, he's hanging out with Joe Rogan on his podcast. You know, he's connecting across the world with me for a chat and you can see that he's, he's really that? high on life. You know, he's, yeah. he's loving life. 
but I look at that and, you know, and, and I asked Bruce, I said, fuck, mate, explain to me how it feels mm. when you're sitting in a courtroom and you're seeing this sentence passed down and you know you're innocent. And he goes, mate, it's the most horrific and terrifying experience of my life. Yeah. I can imagine even more so for being a, a black man at the time 30 years ago oh. in a world that was, you know, more racially charged than it is now, you know, even though yeah. we still have some issues, especially over there in the US. Yeah. And I just think, fuck, I couldn't imagine experiencing I, that. I find like people like that, that zenness that they find in circumstances like that. I, I find inspiration from people like that. And uh, <clears throat> the fact that they can overcome the anger, like anger can destroy you. Like I learn, uh, you know, I've seen a lot about life. I see how victims react when their loved ones are, are you know, murdered. I've, I've seen some bad things because of the nature of the work. But... I really admire people that can get on with their lives and not mm. be angry and bitter all the time because it can destroy you. I, I had a choice when what happened to me in the in the police and it pales into insignificance, the story that you just told, but that was my career. I, that was what I had a passion for. And when I try to explain it to people what it's like, think the one thing that you love the most that you know, is really rocks your boat and that's taken away from you overnight with no right or reply, it's just take, taken away taken away by people you don't respect to start mm -hmm. with, and then you've got to get on with your life. Smarter people and, and good people around me, smarter people than me, um, said, don't let it destroy you. Don't, don't let it destroy you. And there was times when I was sitting there and I'm just angry and I just wanted to fight the world. And I thought, no, let it go. And my my way of revenge is living a, a good life. And I'm enjoying life now. I miss, miss the policing only because that was, yeah, I felt that I still had the energy and I had all the you know, the knowledge that comes with working that long, but I'm really enjoying my life now. So the fellow that you're talking about, 29 years in a prison, wouldn't you just be banging your head? You'd just be... I'm oh, mate, it's, it's crazy to think about how that experience would be firsthand. And yeah. I think true empathy, as we spoke about before, is... You know, when I'm sitting there talking to Bruce, I'm like, I can't even imagine. Like, I can yeah. try to imagine, but I can't. Yeah. Because I've not lived anything close to that experience. I, I find people that have had experiences like that, and I've had, you know, in life in general, also people I've had on the podcast that have experienced trauma or, or different things, gone through hard times, really hard times, that you and I say, well, you know, we can't even imagine going through those times. I do find them rather zen-like. And mm. I put that down to they don't worry about the little things. It's, they realise there's, there's more to worry about than, oh, you forgot to pick something up from the shops on the, on the way home or stuff like that. So they don't sweat the little things. It's the mm. big things. And uh, I try to learn from that. Like I, I'm, I'm open-minded to that type of thing, uh, be able to uh, just live in the moment, enjoy, enjoy what you've got and don't dwell on the past. It's funny, I had a conversation. I'm not going to compare myself to, to that at all because I still get frustrated and I've just, I was just doing a bit of nine to five recently. <laughs> I fucking couldn't <laughs> handle it because I'm like, this isn't for me. So I'm definitely not the, um, the Zen guru master, but you know, speaking to my partner, Soph, yep. um, just the other day and you know, I've grown up with cystic fibrosis and, yeah. and thankfully have done very well um, for having it. You know, but I was talking about, I said it's funny because in some areas of my life I feel very resilient. Yeah. And I feel very courageous. In other areas, I'm like, oh, I'm not so much there yet. And I said, but it's funny that you can identify or be so resilient in one area. So when it comes to yep. my health, yep. rarely anything rocks me. For, you know, Even like when I've had bleeding lungs, 
very positive about it, very optimistic, and that carries me through those experiences mm. and allows me to get through the other side of them. And I feel really good about how I show up for myself in those times. There's other areas of my life where I haven't quite been able to draw that perspective and master it yet. But, but I don't know the Brad, way I do. I, I, Brad, I, I think that's uh, yeah. I think that's tremendous that you've you've identified your strengths, but also your weaknesses. Yeah. Because I think work is a work, life is a work in progress, and you want to be improving. I try to improve every day, mm. and yeah, I'll I'll sit here very wise, and I let the anger pass. And bullshit, I still get <laughs> I still get angry about it, but it diminishes o- over the time. And uh, yeah, you've you've got to let it go. But I think the fact that you've even identified. Oh, that there is room for improvement there. That self awareness is so important, and that's what I—that's what I try to do with myself. I know I can improve myself in virtually every aspect of my life, and I chip away and, and work at it. But uh, yeah, for a setback with uh, cystic fibrosis and your running and and all that, like full credit to you, mate. Like I appreciate it, it mate. It, 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 I know when we first contact uh, made contact, and I was looking, and I think, wow, that's a that's a tough guy. And there's oh, diff- different it. ways of being, being tough, but to overcome overcome that and, uh, and, well, not overcome it, deal with it and don't let it mm. uh, define you, it's well, impressive. It's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because, you know, you speak about there, the, the control of anger and I would say that I'm a, I'm a bit of a teddy bear kind of guy. Like I'm, I'm pretty, um, bit of an emotional cat and yeah. you know, I'm, I'm pretty easy going, but there's times where it gets to, like life can get to me. Yeah. Like I remember the other week, I'd, I'd been crook with the flu and Soph went out for a run by herself. And yeah. we'd normally run together on a Saturday. Yeah. And she went for a 26K run of her credit all by herself. Wow. 100 metres before home, a couple of, you know, not so, um, let's say not so nice fellas walking up the road who are under the influence of some, you know, wacky substances yeah. are yelling out to her and one starts to follow her. Yeah. Mate, when I found out, I had the shits. I'm like, what do they look like? Where are they? Oh, I think yeah. I know who this prick is. I'm walking around the streets trying to find the prick. Yeah. And she's like, calm down, relax. And I'm like, it pisses me off that he's made you feel uncomfortable or unsafe 100 metres from your own home. Yeah. And she's like, relax, mate. It's past. <laughs> and I'm like, really? What do I get from it but the fact that I was, for the next six hours, yeah. pissed off at the world? I'm like, you've got to learn to control that shit. Yeah, you, you have. And I, uh, yeah, people fight or flight, I, I tend to fight. And people say, like, I'm passionate. I'm a passionate person. I love being a passionate person. The highs are very highs. The yeah. lows are very low. But, yeah. yeah, I understand where you're coming from there. I've, uh, uh, during the police, and I think this helped me dealing with pressure and all that, I got into um, boxing and martial arts very early in mm. a policing career. And uh, that helped me. But... That was the hard training. I also got into meditation and a thing called Qigong very early in my police career, and it's like a moving meditation, sort of like Tai Chi. Yeah. That helped me a great deal. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't make me the most zen person in the world, but it makes me more calm than I, I would be. And that was one of the tools I, I had that if I, I, I had enough awareness to realise when I'm operating at a different pace that the rest of society is not operating at, you know, you're out of sync. Like everyone's annoying me, I'm thinking maybe it's me, mm. and I I could sort of take myself away and do some meditation and just sort of recenter recenter myself, and then that's the soft training with the hard training. And I used to run a lot. I'm not running as much now, but that was almost like meditation to me. You know, run five kilometers a day every day, and that was my time. Um, but also with boxing and um, yeah, martial arts, 
you could have all the worries of the world on your shoulders, but when you step into the ring and someone's kicking you in the head or punching you in the head, you forget all the stresses you've got at work and you just live, you can live a life in a three minute round. You can have the highs, you can have the lows and all that. So that, that helped me. And uh, of course, I also partake in a bit of alcohol. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to get on it. The funny thing is I'm a pretty cheap, uh, cheap drunk. So I, I do remember one time and it was when I was in the police, I don't know what was going on, but I thought I'm just going to go home and get drunk. I almost became a copy of what you see on the <laughs> uh, see on the TV, and I had about uh, I could only drink about five beers, and then I passed out. So it wasn't that big. It didn't turn on the too big a thing. Cheap uh, date still. Yeah, it's funny because you know what what you're recalling there about using that martial arts as almost a form of meditation. I was in real estate. Like real estate is my yeah. former career, and it's kind of what I had my trade in. And it's funny because I got to a certain point where real estate wasn't serving me anymore and it was really taking more from me than it was giving and and I've, I've had to learn my lessons that you know I've probably gone back to real estate one of too many times calling on an old skill set that yeah. is quite easy for me to step back into to make some money and you know I remember getting to a point where you know I had a really tough year in real estate and just mentally it was wearing me down and I wasn't showing up in my life the way that I normally would yep. I'm a I'd say that most people I'd like to think would describe me as a pretty happy-go-lucky, yeah, well, you know, that, easy-going that's, that's the energy that you're putting out. So, yeah, yeah, but probably at this point in time, I was a little bit shitty you know, yeah. with my family for doing nothing just because I was coming home from a shit day and not happy and, and found myself just a little bit angry at life. And so I thought I need something to really change up you know, the way that my energy is when I come yeah. home. So I signed up to a Muay Thai gym, a couple of lads right, that I okay. knew um, ran yeah. and owned a Muay Thai gym. It's called Fightworks um, in Wollongong for anyone's around here. <laughs> yeah, good shout And out. I, I went there and I trained for about a year. Yeah. Mate, and it was the most brilliant way to just unload all the shit from work and come home so much more relaxed. Yeah. It was obviously also great for the fitness and you just get the endorphins from exercise, but I found it very hard. I'm not a good fighter by any means. Yeah. Um, you know, I learned some things, but not enough. But, but the, the beauty is it, it just gives you some tools and it gives you an understanding. And yeah. Well, as you said, it's very hard to think about the stress of work when yeah. someone's trying to kick you in the guts. Yeah, exactly. You know? and yeah. It, it works. And, you know, I, I don't condone violence. But, yeah, in that control thing, and I, I think it helps. I think it helps a lot of people. I see a lot of people come in to boxing gyms and mm. different things like that. It's a way to channel channel your energy. Well, I think we can be fooled because, you know, in the days of which, you know, you've got your Conor McGregor's and, you know, yeah. even like your Logan Paul's and Jake Paul's who are stepping into the boxing yeah. world and you see the charade of the press conference where they're flipping tables and that, throwing yeah. things across the room. That's not real boxing. It's, no. it's very much for the entertainment to sell tickets, yeah. to sell, you know, um, you know, to get people at the gate. However, when you walk into a boxing gym, you've never actually experienced, for me personally, I've never experienced a more calm and welcoming, welcoming environment yes. in a fitness setting. I agree with you. There's, there's a respect that comes across, isn't there? Mm. There's, everyone's there, okay, we're, we're going to do it for, for the right reason. From a, a police officer's point of view, I've, I've met some you know, tough guys, hard, hard people, dangerous people and that. And the ones, the truly dangerous ones that I, I know, like physically capable, the, the fighters, put out a completely different energy. They're not strutting around looking for trouble. They're just calm. And Because people would often say to me, because I'd recommend people go, you know, the kid's going off the rails, get him in the boxing or whatever. He's been bashing people. Why are you teaching this person to um, you know, fight? He'll, he'll cause more damage. But the thing is, when you, you learn that skill, you don't feel the need to uh, you know, fight outside. And there's so many people that have gone down that path that, uh, 
And I think it's a wake-up call that no matter how tough you think you are, there's always someone better. And it can be a, yeah, a, a three-foot-tall person that beats the hell out of you if they know what they're doing. And uh, yeah, It's interesting. Um, I'm a fan of a lot of the work that Jordan Peterson does. Yep. And I remember at one point in time listening to Jordan Peterson, it might, it might have been on Jocko Willing's podcast, where he spoke about a, a weak person is a dangerous person because the kind of per- people that are weak will stab you when you've got your back turned. Yeah. Um, a strong person... And, and I think there's the expression better to be um, a, uh, better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Yeah. Because when you have a level of strength, knowledge, and capability, you're quite calm in the way that you express it. And I think that yeah. it's misunderstood that you know to get somebody who's outwardly violent or uncontrollably mm. violent into a martial arts setting will only exacerbate the issue. Yeah. It's the complete opposite. It, is com- it, it teaches them to control it, yeah. to calm themselves, and they lose their ego. That's that's such an important thing, losing the ego. And, and when I, I see the gang wars going on in Sydney and the, the shootings and that, and uh, you know, in my dealings with organised crime matters and organised crime figures, bikies, that type of thing, when you break it down, a lot of them, and uh, you know, I, I don't say this across the board, but generally speaking, people who have joined, say, outlaw motorcycle gangs are looking for a sense of belonging somewhere, and mm. there's an insecurity, an insecurity that they... they never going to be walked over again and they when you get them away from that environment and break it down and have an emotional conversation with with them you can see they're almost like scared little children yeah mm. and that's why they're, they're hunting in the pack putting out their, this persona and uh and, and creating this thing but uh yeah there's yeah and that's not across the board like there's, there's different people join the groups for uh for different reasons but yeah a lot of bravado is sometimes it's just that, the bravado and the scary people, the ones I've come up against, the ones that are making threats to me. Oh, thank you, you've just given me a heads up. And uh, <laughs> it's the ones that don't make a threat. Yeah, when they're walking away and I'm thinking, that's dangerous. There's, yeah. there's no threat there. So it, it's interesting. Ego is a funny thing because I've, I've often thought about ego in both its positive and its negative. And I think yeah. what I've come to learn in people that I've observed who who have ego, mm. but use it really well, is that ego can be um, a really positive trait and a, and a really positive expression where used for good, yep. but where used out of insecurity or a place of, of lack, yep. it can be very dangerous. Yeah, it's a, it, ego is such an interesting uh, interesting area. And yeah, people, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure distractors, my distractors go, I oh, look at it, he's got an ego or, or whatever, he's doing this. You've got to have a confidence if you're a homicide detective. You've got to have a confidence if you're talking in the media or whatever. Is that negative? I, I don't think it's negative. I think everyone uh, 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 everyone needs a sense of self-worth. So mm. what's ego? Is it self-worth or is it ego? Where does it, it cross over? But, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a thing that uh, people struggle with and it's easy for people to pull down. And I... Yeah, let's talk about Charlie Teo because I, I, I listened to him on your podcast and what's been played out. Like I'm sure he's criticised for having an ego, but the person I listen to um, on your podcast and what I've observed, it's someone that's just very confident in what he does. Yeah, and takes ownership of his of his weaknesses yes. and the areas in his life in which he hasn't mastered it yet. And as a surgeon, I wouldn't want a surgeon that's nervous. <laughs> I wouldn't want a surgeon that's going, oh, I'm not sure. I'd want a surgeon with some confidence now. Yeah. That can be misconstrued sometimes. I I was always sometimes people would say, and it was used as almost like um, a, a criticism of me. 
oh, he's very passionate. And, you know, the tone in which it said, you know, what, what do you think of Jubilant as a detective? Oh, he's very passionate. And it's almost like a, a criticism, like it lo loses perspective. Um, I don't see it as a, a negative. You've got to be passionate about what you're doing. When you're investigating uh, crimes, and it doesn't have to be a homicide, you've got to put yourself into it. Because I think the important thing is to treat everyone that you come into contact with as a police officer as a, how you'd want your family treated. For sure. Mate, I actually wrote something the other day because, you know, I just touched on before being, I was back in real estate for a month and yep. by the time people... Are Is there any good buyers around here at the moment? Um, not at the moment. <laughs> okay. Not at the moment, let me tell you that much. Um, the funny thing is, for me, stepping back into real estate, you know, I've been doing this for three and a half years yep. now, right? And, you know, maybe a little bit foolish of me, but I'm, I'm a massive dreamer, Gary, that I left my job at a time where I just bought a property. <laughs> Gutsy. Um, you know, dived into a podcast with no way of making money. Yep. I was at a point mentally where I think I was at a bit of a rock bottom with my career and I needed a change. Yeah. So, I, you know, I knew this was going to be positive either way. But I started doing this. I found myself, you know, dabbling in keynote speaking. I created a charity marathon event. And I had these three things that I was forming passion and real love and, and real purpose within. Yeah. And it become a big part of my life. What I didn't really figure out is the business side of it. Yeah. So I went broke, had to sell my house or my apartment, sell my apartment, thankfully at the time the market was doing really good yeah, things and I was okay. rewarded for that. And then I lived off that money for a while trying to figure yeah. it out. I still didn't figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And I found myself at a point where I was like, I'm really on the fringe of being able to make some money from my skill set. Yeah. But I need to now find myself a way to keep the head above water, to yeah. keep you know a roof over my partner and I's head and food on the table and you know to look after the, the little family that I'm trying to create. And so I stepped back into real estate and realized pretty quickly that it wasn't for me. And it's funny because I sat there and I thought, fuck, like I'm not stressed about money whilst I'm in this job, but I've, ne I've never had anxiety before. Yeah. I'm more anxious than I've ever been. I was having like heart palpitations oh, before yeah, bed. Yeah. I was starting to stress out that I had an issue with my heart. And I think I was putting myself into a bit of a negative headspace because of what I was experiencing. But I started to sit there and go, well, fuck, if I'm sitting in hospital bleeding lungs, I'm not feeling any of the stress that I'm feeling now. I'm yeah. actually quite positive. So it's not hardship that I, I guess, that I fear yeah. or hardship that tests me. But what I've identified is that for me in areas of my life in which I have no passion, I feel like the lack of passion makes me feel a lack of self-worth. Yeah. And, and I found that passion for me is the answer to often the way that I feel about the things and the spaces I exist in in my life. And I think that that passion thing is really important. Oh, I, I get what you're saying. It would be a slow death if you were doing something, living your life on areas that you're not passionate about. And that's not judging anyone. Like They might find passion in, in whatever they're doing. I'm not For saying sure. one's right or wrong. But I hate seeing people uh, go through life that they got regrets that, oh, I should have tried this or I should have done this. My, my life, as I said, has been up and down. I've had highs, great highs, great lows, all, all sorts of things. But I don't have... Yeah, you know, regrets. Like it, it's made me who I am now, and mm. I'm I'm happy with yeah, what I'm I'm become. I think I I like myself anyway. All right, mate. I like I'm, ha I like I'm happy with myself. Others might go, he's a dickhead. So so be it. But I'm I'm comfortable even in that. If people don't like what I do, my shot at the media was pretty interesting times. Like I've come from policing, and all, all of a sudden I've been parachuted into the world in the media, doing work in the media. 
And I have always been a big believer in paying your dues and I felt like I hadn't paid my dues. Like here I am, I'm writing a, a, an article that's on the front page of the paper or I'm doing podcasts and I don't know you know, what I'm doing and I'm doing all this. So what I've done for the past three and a half or it might coming up to four years, I've busted my ass working, like working mm. very, very hard to learn a new trade, learn the skills and try to improve each time. And I, I you know, self-critique and I'm, I'm pretty tough on myself. Um, but I like where I'm at now and I'm just feeling, I'm starting to feel comfortable. Okay, you've, you've worked hard, but you're only as good as your last podcast. You're only as good as your last book. You're only as good as your last TV appearance. So I'm always trying to, trying to improve. Now, some people might say that's a, a failing. Perhaps it is. I think it, I could have an easier life if I didn't strive for that. But it's just in my nature. Yeah, I think it's a. I think what I've learned is that we're all different. Yes. You know? Yeah. And you, you know, I looked around when I was in the real estate office. It's funny because um, maybe sharing a bit too much information here, but I felt like I was really honest with um, my boss when I finished up recently. And I sat down. I said, "To be honest with you, I sat in the office, and every day I'd look around and I'd see a lot of people who were quite happy to be there and yep. were really passionate about their work and." And loved it. And they're great people who I worked with, incredible people. Yeah. And I think that's why I always kind of found it easy to walk back in initially because mm. brilliant company, brilliant people. But what I started to realize that the work wasn't something I was passionate about. And whilst it is for someone else what they love and look forward to every day and get a real kick out of, for me personally, that's just not how I'm wired anymore. I may have been at one point, but not anymore. Yeah, and I, I, I can respect that. I, I, I understand like the energy you'd have in a real estate agent. There'd be some positive people there and you know, really sure. excited each day we're going to make the sale or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I can understand people can live, live their life that way. I look at my life and it hasn't gone down. You know, as I said, two failed marriages. It hasn't gone down the path I thought it would when I set off. And then I've got friends that have been married, you know, the whole whole time they've got the kids family and it's a real you know picket, white picket fence type life i look at them and sometimes I, i'm envious and i'm sure they look at me and think oh, okay maybe it would have been better going down that that path so there's always different ways of living life you've just got to be content with yourself and i'm i'm only i'm just starting to get there like i'm just this is who i am and i think doing the podcast has sort of force that out of you because mm. I, I I joke that um, you know I'm an introverted extrovert because <laughs> I don't like if you put me in a party I'm not the, uh, I'm you know usually the nerd standing in the corner type situation and here here you are in this environment you've got to talk uh, you know open up about uh, things some things that are very uh, personal and you open up about it and I'm, I'm sort of starting to get comfortable with that mm. but uh, yeah it's a it's a strange world I'd be interested to hear one thing that I, you know, we've both been on um, Dylan Friends, Dylan Buckley's yeah, podcast. Yeah. And one of the things I really enjoyed chatting to Dylan about was some of the bigger lessons he's learned off the back of his show. I'd be interested to hear, you know, what are some of the major lessons you've learned from interviewing the people you have? I've learned, I'm, I'm trying to lose or, or trying to learn the skill of the podcast interview that we talked about it before, that, that pause, that sit in silence and let that happen. Whereas my first season of um, I Catch Killers, I was having a conversation with you and most of them were ex-cops that I knew. So it was like two mates at a pub and that's, we wanted the fly on the wall situation. So we'd be talking, but I'd be having my mouth right close to the microphone going, yep, 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 as you're talking. And I think one time there might've been a thousand yeps and I've just gone, I'm going red now, just thinking about it, it was embarrassing. And uh, it wasn't edited and it just sat with it. So I've, I've learnt, learnt that skill. 
I I think I've become a better listener um, doing podcasts and genuinely interested in people's um, stories and life. Um, you take certain skills away from interviewing suspects and witnesses. I think that's transferable into uh, into mm. the work that we do podcasting. The thing that I'm probably happy with in the world that in the media I've gone down, I'm not looking for the gotcha moments. In uh, that's not not, not my thing. I, I had enough of that in when I was in homicide. The gotcha moment was a literal gotcha moment. Gotcha. <laughs> And I'm not looking for that. What I, if people ask me how I would describe myself now? I'd like the biggest compliment I could get would be I'm a, a storyteller and allowing people to tell their stories. And that's what I, that's what I'm trying to do with the uh, the podcasts and, and different things. Yeah, I love it. It's it's an exciting space to exist in because I think that much of how I learn individually is off the back of story. I often seek a person's story and then. I'm able to identify, as I've done with your book, Badness, the most recent one, I've been able to identify actionable insight in that story that I then take on as a human. I'm not a... One of the reasons I really struggle with books and and tend to preference podcasts as a way to learn Mm. is I find it really challenging to read self-help because I just... I don't think I'm wired that way. I've always been a little bit creative, imaginative, and, and I love stories. And I think it's a brilliant way to... You know, for people who maybe exist in a space that is very consistent day to day to expand their horizon outside of the world that they live in? Yeah, I, I think that I can honestly say there's not one podcast I've done where I haven't walked away and learnt something. Now, it's, it could be just something very basic, very simple. That's the way I, I like to process things, mm. just keep it at a uh, simple level. But I, I learn, and people I have on the podcast and that you'll have, you can find inspiration from them and uh, so I yeah I think what a great job like sometimes I, I get up in the morning and just uh, uh, sort of a look at look out and go wow I can't believe I'm living this life because quite frankly if I was still in the police I I would have just kept going because there's always cases that mm. um, yeah I'm going to hang on to uh, yeah it'll I would literally die in the job I didn't have a plan to retire I had a plan to solve this case and you know move on to that so it's been a blessing in disguise. And then I think how lucky I am meeting interesting people, talking, communicating, and uh, yeah. How long did do you think it took you to recognise it as a blessing and not as a betrayal? Oh, I still see it as a betrayal. Did I say <laughs> that or I was just thinking that aloud? Um, no, I, I think pretty my low point my low point was uh, i suppose six months after uh, after it all, all blew up and it might have been the court convicted at court but that was sort of yeah that that was a low point but i still at least put out what i had done and uh, you know it, it wasn't something sinister i'm recording a conversation on my phone which was a miracle because i'm a bit of a dinosaur on my phone <laughs> but uh, that's why i had to get people to show me how to do it before i did it so i didn't really hide it so i'm not a good crook i've realized that um, I, low point was I was just feeling sorry for myself and I was sitting on the lounge I, I stopped training uh, at, like I, I'd train every morning I, I'd stopped training for a, a week or two I, oh, what's the point and really had nothing and then sort of COVID hit as well so it was sort of it was just all over over the place and I wasn't I lived on my own so 
And I'm thinking, oh, I'm hating life. How has my life turned out this way? And then I sort of slapped myself and said, get off the lounge, you idiot, and uh, go for a run, do, do some boxing. And uh, I've sort of started looking at the world a lot brighter. With the Tyrrell matter, it keeps popping up in the media and that sort of drags me back into it, but I'm becoming more resilient to that mm. each time it, it comes in. I'm definite, I, I'm saying it now that uh, I think it, it's um, to the betterment of my life that uh, what's happened to me and I, I look at it in a positive positive way that I'm getting to experience and do things that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do if I was still in the police and in policing 25 years at homicide I got to the point and probably what would have forced me to leave if I, I just did not have the passion for it anymore but I got to the point where it became almost too easy the the straightforward homicides and then you get a case like the um, William Tyrrell matter and that sort of inspires you again and you go, okay, well, this is worth you know, raising the level even even further. But uh, no, I, I'm happy with what I'm doing now. I'm, yeah, in the media, the, the thing is that uh, you're open to criticism when you, yeah, as you would find in doing podcasts or mm. any commentary that you do in the media. When I was in the police, if people criticised me, I didn't particularly care because, yeah, people criticise police. You know, that, that's, that's what they do. So it's important in the media, and I, I can only hazard a guess these people, the high-profile people in the media, you know, the type of uh, stuff they get on social media and that, they'd have to have thick skin, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, you do. It would break me, break me down. Like, It's funny because I think I've... I've been very lucky up until this point. You know, I've done, you know, released 200 episodes of the podcast yeah. up until now. Wow. Which is, and I know you've done yep. hundreds as well. And I've been pretty lucky to say that I think because I come from such a neutral point where nobody knew me before yeah. the podcast, not really a whole lot more people know me now, but the people who, who interacted with my show interacted by choice. Yep. It wasn't a television program at 7.30 every night, in which they had no other option yeah. but to watch or to listen to. But rather, they chose to listen to the podcast, and they're engaging me, engaging with me for their own personal reason. Yeah. So most of the feedback I got was very positive. But it's funny, I you know off the back of the episode I did with Dylan Buckley yep. on his platform, I shared some clips on TikTok, and TikTok's a funny old beast because, you know, you can get some really viral clips, and I had one that like eight, over eight hundred thousand people oh, um, wow. watched, right? Which is quite a lot of people. Yeah. When you think about how many of those people would fit into a room and you know, yeah, how many stadiums you'd need to fill those number. people. And the funny thing was, it was a, quite an out of context clip in which I spoke about my first ever lung bleed. Right. And you know, how that was quite a scary moment. Yeah. You, you know, you think you're dying when you're coughing up I copious amounts of blood. And it's quite an emotional moment in the podcast. Yeah. But the funny thing was, I realized in hindsight, there wasn't a lot of context to the fact that I had cystic fibrosis. Right, so the 800,000 people who've seen yeah, it, who's this some boy? read the caption yeah. and some, you know, there were some comments like, you know, fuck, like this bloke's bit his tongue, thought he was dying, which I thought was hilarious, <laughs> right? That, that's funny. And I'm like, yeah. it's pretty funny that like there were some really creative things in there yeah. that I was able to laugh at. And there was, you know, there was some cruel things in there too yeah. that I was like, I think the thing that I was able to settle on was there was actually a lot of people who reached out and said this was quite touching. Yeah. And the fact that my intent in sharing that, you know, was this quote at the end of it that every person lives two lives, the second begins when they realise they have one. Yeah. And, you know, okay. you know make the most a, that's of your a, that's life. That's an interesting so saying. There's yeah. quite a nice um, bit of cement, um, sentiment at the end of it, right? And there was a real intent behind inspiring people to make the most of their life. And I think yeah. when you know your intent and you're in this world, 
you can settle on the fact that not everyone's going to agree with the outcomes. That's, uh, and again, we are talking before the, the mics came on that what I like with podcasts is that uh, it doesn't have to be a gotcha moment. So let the listener form their own view about the person that they're listening to because it's a conversation. It's like there's someone sitting here beside us listening to us talk. I think that's what I, I really enjoy about uh, uh, doing the podcast. I didn't want to have to be that person that got the scoop, that broke that person down, that mm. did that. That was my that was my policing career. And you don't make people happy in that. You go to work each day knowing there's a good chance you're gonna make someone cry when you're when you're a cop, or at least make their day worse than what it is. I really like being able to have the opportunity with podcasts and yeah, it's grown exponentially, podcasts. Mm. I um I, I just think it is the future of uh, people uh, you know, getting messages across and letting people, people like Charlie Teo, give his side of the story and form, form your own view because there's clearly two camps in the media about Charlie Teo. Um, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's very polarising. What better way to make an informed decision just hearing from the man himself? So Yeah, it's truly a sign of independent thinking when you can sit down, do your own research and make your own mind up. And I think podcasts, as you said, play a really important role in that. Yeah, mate, it's been a real blessing to sit and talk to you. I'm I'm fascinated by your story, um, your former career, now your current career, and you know the the changes for you as a human being. I, I really want to give you one last opportunity before we finalise the chat, just to share a message with the audience. If there's something that you've learned throughout this whole experience that you think would be really formative for them to hear, uh, I'd be interested to hear it. I think, okay, that's a, that's a big question. Let me uh, make sure I get the, the right uh, view on it. From my pers- personal view, what I've seen in the work I did in the police, no matter how bad you think it is, someone's going to be worse off. And if you take that to the table each time you, you, you step up, I've tried to take a positive outlook on life. I I really do. If I wake up each day, I want to go, okay, just enjoy the day because your career goes very quickly, your life goes very quickly, and I've seen life can be lost very suddenly. So try and enjoy enjoy it. And that's not necessarily saying that that's the way I've I've lived my life, but that's what I'm striving to. So I think it's always good to strive to. I want to just enjoy every day and uh, and see the beauty in the world rather than the the darkness because there's plenty of darkness there. We can explore that, but find some beauty in the world to get you through. Some incredible self-awareness there too to to recognise that it's not always the way that you've lived, but the way that you'd like to live from here on out. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Um, I'm going to make sure that every way that people can connect with you through your social, which I know you post a yep. lot of the podcast clips, um, the podcast itself, the books. Oh, I'm only halfway through badness, but really enjoying it. And and I don't often, as I said to you before this, research my guests, hmm. but I was fascinated with your life and your story up until this point and, and wanted to get a bit of insight. And, you know, often if I do that with a guest, I'll listen to a bit of a book and then maybe I'd, I'd put it down after yeah. the conversation. But I said to Sophie this morning, it's a book I'm going to finish listening to because I found it really interesting listening to both sides of the story and, and also both perspectives, you know, yeah. in front and behind crime. And so for me, it's been fascinating. I want to thank you for coming on the show, mate, and giving me your time. Well, thanks for having me, Brad. And I really appreciate it. And I like the stuff you're doing here and good luck for you doing something that you're passionate about. So keep up the good work. Mate, I appreciate it. So you heard it here, ladies and gentlemen, Former celebrated homicide detective, now celebrated storyteller. Thanks, <laughs> Storyteller. Mate. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. 
It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognize the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling. And as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week. Thank you.